All right, guys. So if we could uh, begin to gather back in, those of you still perhaps out in the uh, extra area there. Uh, so again, I, you know, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, again, I, I'm going to just introduce myself again. I, I was here back in the summer. Uh, Gibson introduced who I was. My name is Adam LaRue. I uh, spoke again on, on Proverbs 2, so I was already familiar with, with this teaching series. Um, and uh, my wife was here last time. We've got five kids. Unfortunately, they had some responsibility at, at our home church, so she wasn't able to make it again. But uh, you know, it was a pleasure to, to come last time, but uh, I'm a full-time social studies teacher. Uh, I teach seventh grade uh, in the Central Bucks School District, so, you know, teaching is just a, a part of who I am, and, and I love doing it. Uh, we know, uh, I know Gibson and the Largens through our homeschool program, so that's how we have started to inter uh, interact and get to know him and have become great friends, and we lo I love talking ministry with, with Gibson. He's a, he's a wonderful guy, and I'm sure many of you know that. Uh, at this point. So, um, but again, I, I, I uh, am part of the Penn Valley Church down the road and, you know, part of just doing ministry there. So it, it's a passion of mine to just be up here and be able to share God's word with you uh, and be able to help kind of close this sermon series out that you guys have been working on. So for the past several months, you guys have been going through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is all about wisdom, right? What is it? How do we get it? How is it a benefit to us? Uh, and so the first nine chapters uh, in Proverbs is really kind of an introduction to the rest of the book. Uh, as you move beyond chapter nine, you start to where you start to see a lot of these kind of short, pithy little statements uh, that you see all throughout uh, the book of Proverbs. But this is, again, kind of a general introduction. And, and what we have uh, is this introduction really from a father to his son. And it's a, it's a much more intimate and personal feel that, that this offers to us. And so a lot of times, if you were to, to just kind of scan back through those first nine chapters, what you would see is a lot of the phrase of, my son, my son, listen, my son, right? So, so that's kind of the, the introduction that we have to this of what we're going through. So as I said, we're going to conclude this part uh, today. Um, and the whole time the father has been trying to educate his son on this idea of wisdom and, and what is it and how to about, go about getting it and, and to avoid folly in that process. Uh, and so as he concludes this part, he says, son, you've got, you've got a choice here. You've been invited to two different houses. You've been invited to two different parties, and you've got to make a decision on which one you're going to go to. And there's no third option. There's not, I'm just going to stay home, or I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, the dad is saying, you've got to make a choice on one or the other. Uh, and so he's really pleading with his son in this last final part of the intro to make the correct decision uh, as he goes about this. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to chapter 9, and I'll, I'll come back to that. But um, as I was doing some research, I, I came across a scientific thought that's out there uh, by some psychologists. They, they call it decision fatigue. Okay, decision fatigue. And what they say is that on an average day, you make about 35,000 different decisions in a day. So that may help for some of you explain, like when you come home from work or after a long day and you're like, I am exhausted and I have exactly no idea what I did all day. Well, that's because your brain 
is constantly in this nonstop motion of making decision after decision after decision. And some decisions are super minor, like, hey, what am I going to wear in the morning? What am I going to eat for breakfast? Uh, my kid wants to play sports. Do I sign him up or not? Right? But some decisions are a lot weightier. You know, do I, do I take this job or do I not take this job? How do I care for an aging parent and they're beginning to struggle, right? That's a lot more weight and a lot more pressure that, that gets put on a person. But this is what your brain does all day. And then so you finally get home, right? And you finally get a chance to sit down and you're just like, I'm done. Because what your brain says, I can't make one more decision. And it just wants to quit, right? And we sit on the couch and we turn the, and maybe some of you don't even turn the television on. You just sit there and stare at a blank screen at this point, right? Because you're just like, you can't even think about like picking up the remote and being like, what am I going to watch this? Because you're like, no more. Like, I'd rather just sit here and just stare. But that happens to a lot of people. Now, again, it's mentally draining. It becomes physically draining. And so what starts to happen when decision fatigue sets in is they start to say that, um, as the day goes on, our, our ability to make good decisions starts to wane. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So when, when that starts to happen, procrastination, you know what, I'll make that decision later. And we just keep pushing it off and pushing it off because we're just not in a right state of mind. Uh, impulsivity, let's just go with that one, whatever. You know, I, I don't kind of care. Like, just pick something. Uh, avoidance, I'm not going to make a decision at all. I'm just Put it out of sight, out of mind. Hopefully the problem goes away. Uh, or they talk about the indecision, which means that you just automatically default to yes or no. You hit a point in the day where, where you're just like, you know what, I don't care anymore. If anybody asks, the answer is either going to be yes or it's either just going to be no. And I'm not even going to listen to what the question is. So if, if whatever you ask me, I'm just saying yes or no. Right? And obviously that's some poor decision making right? as you start to go through that process. And so we become very irritable. We become very anxious. We become stressed. A lot of times for people that really struggle with this, you know, a, a set of depression can set in uh, when you're trying to make all of these major decisions and have all of this weight going on. And so there's a couple of solutions that they have said for people. And I just want to highlight two of them. Okay? Uh, the two that they have said is if you prioritize major decisions earlier in your day, that will help you because you get the hard stuff out of the way when you're still fresh and still feeling good. And the other one is to have a philosophy of decision-making. That when you come across different decisions, the idea is, is that you kind of have this framework that says, my decisions all have to meet this kind of criteria. They have to adhere to this type of understanding. And if it doesn't, I'm not going to make that decision. So they said, those are two of the bigger ones to help eliminate some of that pressure. Now, I start with all of this because, again, as I said, son's got a decision to make at the end of this, right? And you can imagine this is a weighty decision that this son is going to have to make. And so I want you to keep this in mind as we go through chapter 9 because I'm going to come back to decision fatigue at the very end uh, when I wrap up this sermon. So as I said, if you have your Bibles in chapter 9, we're going to begin to work through that. Now, the wisdom books, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, 
They're all written largely in poetic form. And now that was largely done for very aesthetic purposes. It sounds really good. But also, the use of the poetic form was designed to help instill retention. Right? We're saying things in a way to make sure that you're able to retain that. And in the, in, in the book of uh, Proverbs here in chapter 9, one of the specific forms of this poetic that we see is called the antithetical parallelism. And it's a fancy word. I just wanted to sound like I was smart. Okay, um, Antithetical parallelism. And what that means is you take one verse and then you contrast it with an opposing idea right next to it. Okay, So you say one thing and then the very next verse you say the opposite. You say something and then you say the opposite. You say something and then you say the opposite. And so... When we look at this passage here, this is what we see. We have these three antithetical ideas. We have uh, the two differences between the houses. We have the difference between the response that people have to wisdom. And then we have the consequence of how wisdom is. And so this structure of chapter 9 is actually how I'm going to work through this chapter. Okay, so I'm just not going to read straight through all the way. I'm actually going to be jumping around a little bit. So um, if, you have, if you have the Bibles, here we go. We're going to get started. I'm going to read passages 1 through 6. It says, Wisdom has built her house. She has honed out her seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine, and she has also set her table. She has sent out her maids, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, Come, eat my food and drink the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. All right, so we have our first house, right? We have our, our first decision here, the house of wisdom, right? Lady wisdom uh, is there. And so when we look through this passage, first off, what do we know about our house? Well, it's got seven pillars, which, you know, there's a lot of theories and ideas of what do those seven pillars mean. Um, here, here's what I think. I think those seven pillars is just highlighting the idea that this is a probably a big house. To have seven pillars was the idea that it was very spacious, that you probably had some wealth and some money, uh, and probably was a very, very nice-looking house. Okay, So if you can kind of start to picture a nicer-looking house in your mind. right? Uh, and then she's prepared the food. right? She's getting it all ready, and she says she's mixed the wine. And now that may sound insignificant, but the idea of mixing wine was important because in the Bible, and in older times, um, Wine was often more so diluted with water than just the pure form. So you oftentimes would actually have more water in your wine than just straight wine. Because if you drank straight wine, that was for the drunkards. All right. If you wanted to get you know a little you know kickback for the weekend, you just drank the wine sweet, uh, straight. And no like like rational uh, you know civilized upstanding person would have been a part of that. So, so here she is mixing the wine for you. It's appropriate to drink. Uh, the table's set, right? So we put out the placemat. We've got the plates. We've got the cups, the forks, and napkins. You know, maybe we put a little nice little flower centerpiece, centerpiece on there, right? So everything's looking great. And then what does she do? She sends out her servants. And she says, go, go into the town, go into the village, go into the city. Go, call the simple people. Call those who lack understanding, the naive. Call them to this great table that I've prepared for them. And, and all the food that I have set up, I, I want everybody to come. So she sends her servants out. And then she offers the invitation that says, if you come and accept this, if you accept my invitation, what are you going to get? You're, you're going to get life 
and you're going to get a way of understanding. You are going to enjoy the atmosphere and the pleasure of the company. You're going to enjoy the food that has been set out for you. You are going to have an amazing time if you just accept this invitation. Okay? So leave your life, leave it all behind, and come embrace the new great life that I'm offering to you. Okay, so that's the first one. So, so now we're going to go over and go, okay, well, what does the other invitation look like? What does that house look like? So now I'm going to skip down to verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come in here, she says. To those who lack judgment, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there and that their guests are in the depths of the grave. So, what do we get with the contrast between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly? Well, again, Lady Wisdom is hardworking and she's created a beautiful atmosphere and, and, and she just wants everyone to have a wonderful time. Well, now we've got Lady Folly, and she's, she's loud, unruly. Like, you know, if you've ever been to that party and there's that really loud, obnoxious person, that's probably what I'm envisioning here, right? And, you know, she, she doesn't really know anything. She's just shouting probably random stuff or just doesn't make any sense. My guess is the wine's probably not diluted in this case. Um, and, and as Wisdom sends out her servants, what does Folly do? Folly just sits there at the front of her house. Hey guys, anybody want to come in? Come on in. Like I get this impression, like it's almost like some sort of carnival barker. You know, come in, come on, one and all, come see. Right? And you're kind of like skeptical of like, what is this person offering inside here? Right? And so she's just calling out, and the food, well, Lady Lady Wisdom has prepared a wonderful meal. And this lady's like, hey, I stole some stuff. We'll just eat it in secret. I mean, I don't know what this food looks like. But my guess is that as I kind of get this impression in my mind, like I'd probably go to the table and I'd be like, I ain't eating that, right? But that's what's being offered here. And just as Lady Wisdom was offering life and knowledge, well, guess what? Lady Folly is also offering something too. She's offering you death. And see, as Lady Wisdom is calling out and saying, here's what you're going to get, Lady Folly doesn't tell you that's what lies inside. And so, when you put the two houses together, this should seem like a no-brainer, right? <laughs> the obvious choice should be Lady Wisdom, shouldn't it? I mean, geez, when you put the two together, it should be as clear as day that life is better than death. That one house is prepared in a way that I want to live, and another one is one that I want to run from. But let me just say, though, if that was always the case in life, why do so many of us make the wrong decision? Why do we have a world out there that constantly chooses folly? Because again, as I said, it just it seems so obvious to us, right? And as much as we try to, to get people on the right path, to, to pick the right house, there's constantly these mistakes after another, after another, after another. So let's, let's back up now. Let's back up to verse 7 here. 
And I want us to help begin to understand why we make the wrong decisions. Chapter, uh, verse, verse 7 here, it says, Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man and cures abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. And teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. So again, we, we've got these two differences, right? What is people's response to wisdom? Well, how does the mocker handle it? How does the one who chooses folly? Well, instead of bracing in wisdom, they flat out reject it. And not only is the mocker rejecting it, but now it's lashing, lashing out in anger and rejection at you, right? As if you're the problem for trying to bring wisdom into their life. How dare you come to me with this? Isn't that the most confusing thing in the world? I'm trying to save you and help you, and this is how you respond to me? It's absolutely baffling, right? But see, that's what foolishness is. It's illogical. It's irrational. It's sinful. It doesn't make any sense. But if you were to bring wisdom to the person that's choosing the correct house, it's a completely different response, right? The response is, is, is of love and gratitude. Great, I'm, gonna, I'm so glad you told me this. I want to add to my knowledge. I want to add to my learning. I, 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 I want to I get better. I want to have the kind of life that I should have. Because when we, we choose a heart that is set on folly, right? What are we doing? We are really there to attack. But when we choose a heart that is set on wisdom, we grow from it. And that is an indicator for us as well to say, where am I at? If people are speaking into your life and they're trying to help you, and let's just be honest, truth is hard sometimes. Truth is not always lovey-dovey, feel good. When we hear that, if we have a heart that gets anger and, and bitter, maybe that's because in that moment, we're choosing the wrong house. But if we have a heart of humility that can embrace that, then as much as it may be hard to hear truth, at least we know we're going in the right direction. Now, the father has said, look, you got two decisions here. And I'm kind of laying out for you what you need to do. And I want to give you a final warning here. Okay, son, I want to just... One more time. Let me just tell you one more time a final warning. And so we come to verse 10 and 11 now. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through me your days will be many, and your years will be added to your life. Now, we've been talking about this because this has come up before. And I know when I spoke last time, I brought this up. And I know when Gibson did the very first chapter of this, he spoke about this. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. He says, son, let me just remind you holistically everything about wisdom here. It starts with fearing God. And again, that idea of fear is not like I cower in a corner as if someone's going to hurt me. 
but it's an understanding of reverence and all and understanding the majestic and powerful nature of who God is. Yes, God is all powerful and I know God can do anything that he wants. But at the very same token, I also know that God is loving and gracious and merciful towards me. That, that is what it means to have a healthy fear of God, right? I, I don't take who I am for granted and I certainly am not going to take God lightly in what I do. And so he says, now that I've laid out to you this warning again, let me just conclude this for you, son. Let me just lay it straight. And here's what he says in verse 12. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Son, it's very simple. If you pick wisdom, you will be rewarded. And if you choose folly, you will suffer. That's it. So do you want reward or do you want suffer? Come on, son. We've been talking about it. Where are you going to go? Which party are you going to attend? And as I said, again, when you lay these side by side, again, isn't it obvious, guys? Which one is the better? I mean, nobody wakes up and goes, boy, today I hope I get punished. I hope I make the wrong decision and something bad happens to me. Nobody ever says that, right? We're, we're, we're constantly thinking, man, I hope whatever I did, I hope I can get out of it. I hope my day goes well. I hope nothing bad happens, right? I hope I just, I just want to enjoy life, right? That, those are the mentalities that we wake up with. But so again, side by side, it should be an obvious answer. But there's a reason why God has said this in Matthew 7. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Only a few will find the right path to the right house. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, we are told that Satan masquerade as an angel of light. He dones a costume and he tries to fit in with everyone else. Because Satan is deceptive, is he not? Sin is deceptive. And that's the way he functions. See, Satan's never out on the street corner saying, Here I am! I'm the bad guy! I'm full of evil. I'm here to ruin your life. He's never doing that. That's not how Satan works. And so what happens, he pretends to look like the truth. And he pretends to look like the truth. And he says, come, come over here. I've got something you want. And then what do we do? We buy into his lies. If we compare these two ladies, I want you to notice something. We just talked through the difference between them, right? But if we take them at surface value, they actually look very similar. Both of them are calling out. Both of them have food for us. Both of them have given us an invitation. And both of them have promised us some sort of gift, right? On the surface, they're both doing the same exact thing. But they are worlds apart, right? And the big difference is the gift that's being offered. One is for life, 
and one is for death. The problem is, I don't realize I'm dead until it's too late. But Lady Wisdom will tell you right from the start, if you want life, here it is. You know, Jesus also talked about this idea, how Satan is deceptive. And he he says further in Matthew 7, he says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. We all can tell a wolf coming a mile away, right? Right? No, no sheep herder is ever tricked when he's like, oh, that wolf looks like a sheep to me. We have no problem identifying that. The problem is when the wolf goes to the costume store and gets the sheep costume and then puts it on. And then what does it do? It comes walking in and tries to blend in like everyone else. And as I said before, before we realize it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, it's too late. So how do we, how do we stop that? How do, how, do, how do we prepare ourselves to see the wolf coming? To see Satan rearing his ugly head? Well, we have to be wise, right? I can tell a wolf by the way that it acts. I can tell by the way that it talks, the way that it looks, the way that it smells. Everything is different between Satan and God. But I have to know the difference. And so how is it that I have to be wise? Because both are going to promise me freedom and fulfillment in this world. But only one of them is actually true. Now, before I dive a little bit more into how is it that we're wise, let me just give you a cultural, couple cultural examples of, of how we deal with wolves in sheep's clothing. And these are probably are going to be very familiar to you. Uh, truth is relative, right? What we say is in culture, hey, you believe whatever you want, and I will believe whatever I want. And you know what? It's okay. We can both have different opinions about life and the way life functions, and we're both fine, and in the end, we'll both be okay. Truth is relative. We also talk about the I'm a good person argument. Listen, as, as long as I'm a good person, in the end, God's going to love me and I'll get to go to heaven. I just, I just got to be a nice person. That's, that's what it comes down to. Or we espouse the idea that just God doesn't exist. There is no God, so do whatever you want. Who cares? These, these are the cultural lies that are always being presented to us. And the world attempts to make it seem as if this is what is actually true and real. But every one of them is a lie, and we buy into those lies. See, truth is relative doesn't work, because by definition, truth is fundamentally adheres itself to reality, which means what is real. Truth equals real. And here's the thing. This is not like some Marvel multi-universe world where I'm living in one time span and you're living in another time span. And I'm going to be honest with you. If you start talking to people about multi-universes and you do this and we do that, they're going to start to think you're crazy because nobody believes that. But yet, somehow, when it comes to these issues of morality and right and wrong, then we go, oh, do whatever you want. You can believe that. That's fine. You, you be you. You be you. 
That's fine. You be you is going to be dead just like I'm going to be dead someday. And then you will see the truth. You know, I can't earn God's favor and blessing. That's what we think if I'm a good person. Well, if I'm just good enough, God will love me. Okay, well, well, here's what happens with that argument. If it's all about being a good person, it becomes a scale, right? And all, all it is, is my good has to outweigh my bad. And as long as my good outweighs my bad, I'm a good person, right? So if that's the case, I could put a whole lot of good in here, and then I can go out and do bad, right? Well, Adam, a good person wouldn't do that. Exactly, because we're not good people. Well, as long as I'm good enough, it's okay. Yeah, but you're going to do bad. Well, I know, but I'm, I'm outweighing my good. Yeah, well, then go ahead and do bad. Well, no, that's not right, because none of us are good, and our goodness will never get us to God. It's illogical. And to say that God doesn't exist is going to mean one of two things here. If God doesn't exist, then it's, it's the whole carpe diem. You seize the day and do whatever makes you happy. You do whatever you want to do, right? Because in the end, we're all going to die and we're all going to be worm food. So enjoy life as you can, right? So if that's the case, why is it that so many people tell you you're wrong? If this world is about me and about my happiness and my pleasure, how dare you interfere with that? Okay, well, here's the thing. As long as your life doesn't interfere with my life, then it's okay. Again, that, that logic doesn't make sense because you've already told me it's all about me and my happiness. I could care less about your happiness. Well, I have the same right to happiness as you. No, because in the end, I'm going to die, and it doesn't matter what happens to you. It only happens to me. Boy, that's a pretty selfish world to live in, right? But don't so many of us live there? Or here's the flip side to that. God doesn't exist, and we can be very pessimistic and say, who cares? We're all going to die. Right? That's, let's just be done with it. Well, if life doesn't matter... Why do we spend so much time trying to convince people that life does matter? That you should have a purpose? Well, if God doesn't exist, I can do what I want, but yet everybody tells me what I should do, and everybody tries to convince me I should do something. No, if this is the truth, then stay out of it, and I'll do whatever I want, and you should actually just be happy for me however I choose to live. But that's not how we live. It is a contradiction of itself. But see, this is what folly and Lady Folly says. She espouses these ideas of lies, these ideas of death to us. And the only way that I can see through it again is if I'm wise. So how is it that I'm wise? Well, let's go back to Proverbs chapter 9 here. Verse 10. If I want to be wise, here it is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's how I'm wise. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You know, when I spoke here before, I said this last time. Wisdom is found in a person. It's not found in a book. It's not found in a, in a television show. It's not found in a theory. Wisdom is found in a person, and that is Jesus Christ. 
Because when we find Jesus, what do we find? We find wisdom. And when I find wisdom, I'm accepting that invitation from the proper house, and I'm accepting salvation from Jesus Christ, and I'm accepting freedom and fulfillment from my sins. And what are we given? We are given life. And what does Christ say to us? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 10, 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God is promising us the very thing that Satan is trying to offer to us, but he's saying that is the lie and this is where you will find it. Only in me. And that is the reward that we are promised. We are promised an eternal destiny and a life that we get to live to the fullest. So again, when, when Lady Wisdom was preparing her home and offering this invitation and getting the house all ready for us, remember, she, she had a meal, right? She set the table. She got the meat together. She diluted the wine for us. She set everything together. And there will come a day where if we choose Christ, we will share that meal together. Revelation 19 says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous act of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. For those of us that embrace Christ, we will share a meal together at our Father's table. Now, I said I'd come back to this idea of decision fatigue. So let me just close this out. As I said, we make about 35,000 decisions a day, and it's exhausting. And as time goes on, as the day goes on, we make poor decisions. And the two priorities, again, were, or the two suggestions were, prioritize your major decisions and have some sort of philosophy of how to make decisions. You need to prioritize this question. Who is Christ? Is he some sort of cult lunatic in history? Is he some sort of fictitious individual that we talk about to make ourselves feel good? Maybe he was just a good teacher and had some good morals. Or maybe... He is who he says he is, which is the savior of the sins for the world. Because that is not a question we can mess around with. This is not an eeny, meeny, miny, mo. This is not I will get to Jesus later type of question. This is a question that has to happen now in our lives. And if you haven't dealt with that issue, I encourage you to think about that and really dive into that and and talk to people here and talk to Gibson and do some study and get into God's word and figure out who is Jesus in your life. And if you have Jesus in your life, 
I am so happy for you. And I'm glad that we can call each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. But that doesn't stop there. Because now, Christ is your everything in this world. And so when you make decisions, that's what he's calling you to. Are you going to make biblical decisions? Are you going to make worldly decisions? Do I do this or do I do that? Well, what does the Bible say? What does God want me to do? I I, I really offended this person, but I really am mad at them. How do I respond? Well, what does the Bible tell you to do? Or do I just choose what the world tells me to do? We have to live by a biblical world view. Because again, the reality is this. There is a consequence for our decisions. We will either face reward or we will suffer. There is a heaven and there is a hell. That is a reality that will happen to each and every one of us. And my plea, and just as my plea is this, it is the very one that Jesus Christ did, except Jesus did it with his blood. Choose Christ. This is the wisest decision that you can ever make in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I I, I thank you that um, we are sinners. We are imperfect people. Lord, we are flawed individuals that very much don't deserve to be able to come to your house, to be able to sit at your table one day. But Lord, you said you loved us and that you cared for us. And so you shed your blood upon that cross to offer us forgiveness of our sins. We know that this world is constantly at us. This world is there to try to make decisions, to try to influence us, to choose the lies of Satan. And so, Lord, I pray that as we make decisions, God, let this be an opportunity to be grounded in your scripture and to be grounded in your love that as we approach each and every single day, that we make decisions for your glory and to live the way that you've called us to. Amen.